Welcome to SF City Insider, a San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Trisha Thadani, a city hall reporter at the Chronicle. My colleague Dom Fricasa and I spoke to the leading candidates in each district race up for grabs in November. This episode, we spoke to District 10 candidate Tony Kelly, the current president of the Potrero Boosters Neighborhood Association. Kelly is a longtime neighborhood activist who has run for the seat twice before. He considers himself a democratic socialist, but the question is how voters will respond to that label. Tony Kelly, thank you so much for coming into the City Hall press room. Glad to be here. Um, so how we start with everyone, we're going to give you 60 seconds to do your elevator pitch, and I'm going to time you. Okay. So, all right, three, two, one, go. All right, San Francisco native. Uh, parents made a lot of bad career decisions, so I didn't get back to the city after I was born here until after college. Uh, been in District 10 since 1994. Been volunteering there about 15 years, mostly with... Um, Residents on environmental issues, closing power plants, trying to get the stink out of the air around the sewage plant and the dump, and of course a lot of work on the Chandra's Point shipyard, and also affordable housing, and then learned land use in the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan there. Um, and by working with neighborhoods over 15 years, became more of an activist. 30 seconds. And especially this year, I think people really just want to be heard. You know, There's this wave moving across the country of people wanting to live their lives with dignity and respect, and they don't think government is doing that for them. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's been this real, I think, momentum um, going with, and we're knocking on thousands of doors and building up supporters every week because they just want City Hall to respond to them better, especially in District 10, which is, might be the least corporate-free corner of the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this this is the third time you're running mm-hmm. for D10 supervisor. Um, so what, what has changed about the district since the last time you ran, and how have you changed your campaign around that? Well, I think first the world has changed. I mean, mm-hmm. I've sort of have hit that. I mean, there's been this real explosion since the Trump election of government really isn't doing it for us. And, and knocking on doors, we're knocking on thousands of doors a week uh, in the district. And that's a, that's a definite change in that uh, running before the stereotype from consultants and political professionals was like, don't knock doors in Bayview and Viz Valley. There's too few voters. There's too many hills. Oh, just, just phone calls and mail. <laughs> well, no, I've worn out two pairs of shoes already. I've got one more to go. And, and so we're knocking thousands of doors. And I tell you, Nine and a half times out of ten, they've never talked to a candidate in their lives. They know. They know the city doesn't really care about them. They know that they're basically abandoned. They know there's disparities in health and school and work all over. And, you know, they want to live in a city that's not trying to price them out. They want to live on land that doesn't make them sick. They want to live in a, land, you know, in a city that can house everybody. And you shouldn't have to be rich to live in a rich city. That's the point. And so we used to have this international reputation for creativity and opportunity, and you can come here, you know, with a dream. And now we have this international reputation for greed and inequality. So we need to change that, especially in District 10, where we're really suffering first and worst on it. So I think the world is different, and that's why I think the campaign is different, because it's all field. It's all talking to people at doors. So in terms of your campaign, mm-hmm. I mean, have you changed, like, your positions and everything? Or is it more, is, or is the difference more in, in your approach to the I think I think it's just um, the, the commitment mm-hmm. to, to the knocking doors and saying we're going to try to knock every door. We're going in all the precincts. Because mm-hmm. um, I've been an organizer for 15 years, and so, like, let's use our strength, which is organizing. Um, I think, actually, my consistency of my ideas is actually a plus, mm-hmm. you know, because my platform isn't, oh, this is good for an election year. I mean, I've been banging on the Navy about the shipyard for 12 years now. I've been mm-hmm. talking about public bank for nine. And these are hot issues now because socialism is cool, <laughs> kind of. 
But not really, because it's for people who will say it, but then will slow walk actually doing anything about it. So I think the fact that I've been consistent and been there informs all of this, both for consistency of positions, but also the change in approach and going to doors and talking to folks about it. Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you are the only candidate uh, in any district-wide race in San Francisco to be endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of San Francisco? Yes, yes, and also national. The only, the only na- so the only national endorsement by the so, DSA. So, so well, two things. So, only candidate endorsed by DSA San Francisco, also endorsed by the Bernie Kratz San Francisco, because we have two Democratic Socialist groups in the city, not one, and also by the national DSA National and Our Revolution National. And DSA National has only endorsed twenty-two candidates in the entire country. So we're getting some national attention on this, especially because it's San Francisco. Why? Why do you think that is exactly? Why? Why do you think that you were among such a such a you know scant few people to be recognized by the DSA? Well, so two things. One, I think it's a reflection of the consistency, you know, because DSA San Francisco made a decision a year ago to not endorse candidates. Candidates disappoint you. Candidates change their minds. Candidates lie. Candidates will say anything in an election, that kind of thing. Um, it's like they're not getting into that. Ballot measures don't do that. Ballot measures aren't like, oh, you thought I was a yes. Really, I'm a no. But I'll, I'll make it up to you next year. I'll be a yes again next year. Uh, so they were mistrustful. And, and I was a member of Bernie Kratz fairly early in the 2016 drama um, of elections and joined DSA soon after that and just worked with them as a member. And you build up trust. And so it really is. Because DSA, I think, I think both those groups have an interest in running their own candidates. And I think they saw that, well, this is basically that. So that's one thing just in the organizations. But again, I think it goes to the consistency. Because by working with the groups, they saw that I was really a community leader on some of their core issues like public banking and free city college and affordable housing and public housing for a while. So before it was cool. And that's just sort of grown even more because now they see, they see the injustice in Bayview. They, they're, they're actually working on beds for Bayview and supporting Mother Browns and showing up at shipyard meetings and you know, trying to show solidarity the way they've done in other parts of the city. I, I guess what, really what I wanted to ask yeah. is, is what, what does that mean for the lens through which you view the world, generally speaking? Oh, oh that's, no, that's great. That's actually really good because I think... Especially in political circles, you know, San Francisco is such a stereotype of being this liberal, hip, progressive city, which it is until money gets involved. Mm-hmm. And then, no, 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 not, not so much, you know. So you can marry who you want, you can smoke weed and all this, don't do all your you know, crazy social stuff, <laughs> but don't mess with our land, don't mess mm-hmm. with our money. And what really, I think, is at the core of democratic socialism is people want more control of the economy and their government. They want more direct access. So in a way, the most socialist thing in my entire platform is daily office hours in the neighborhood. Every single day would, of the year. How would you make that work? Would you, you always be there? Or? Well, it would be me and my staff. <laughs> okay. but, but to be honest, my staff would kill me if I didn't do it half the time. Yeah. Right? So, I got, so I'm committed on it. But it's funny because the, f- the first generation of district supervisors elected in 2000, they kind of did this. They didn't advertise it as such, but they did because they showed up at neighborhood meetings. Mm-hmm. Because they knew who voted for them. They know how they got there. They knew they had to stay in touch yeah. and know what's going on in their neighborhoods. And so they showed up. So to me, it's as simple as going to church, going to the garden club, going to the neighborhood association, going to the community center when they have an event, and then sticking around for an hour after. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's actually not as much of a time suck as it could sound like, mm-hmm. especially when you don't meet with lobbyists. You know, cause <laughs> which, which I think happens a lot in this building, I, I'm yeah. told. Um, I think there's been fear 
in San Francisco political circles and our one party establishment of like going too far left because then you get smacked down by the money side. And what's great about the rise of democratic socialism is to be proud and unafraid of that and saying, you know what, we're going to tangle with that. And, and especially in San Francisco, these are the guys who passed Prop F and beat Prop H in June. They wrote a measure themselves for free lawyers for evictions, put it on the ballot, did the campaign, they taught themselves how to do a campaign, and won it. And in the middle of that, decided to take on the police. Who does that? You know, that's crazy. And all that citywide energy of these two organizations, the fastest growing organizations in the city, is now pouring into one district. Mm. So, so you, um, you've cast yourself as a candidate who would, who would move away, and this is quoting from your, sure. um, your website. Uh, so you're a candidate who would move away from city hall games and, quote, brutally unfair policies. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of those um, brutally unfair policies, and how have they manifested themselves in D10? There was a hearing about racism in the Department of Public Health. Yes. And a long brewing, long overdue hearing about how African Americans, black and brown folks really, are not, well, I'd say systematically, except it may not have been conscious, but that's it's the same result. You know, way disproportionate results where they're being pushed out of good middle class public service jobs. And we have the worst disparity between black employment and white employment in America. We have the worst achievement gap between white students and black students in the state. We have a 14-year shorter life expectancy. I could go on for 20 more minutes mm -hmm. about the disparities. And when you add it up, policies got us here. Policies have to get us out with all of these things. And what I said at the hearing on Wednesday was saying that what Department of Public Health is doing to their employees bleeds out to what they do in the communities because they're not even studying the health disparities in Bayview. They're not even collecting the data they stopped in 2009. And they're telling us that the shipyard is safe when in your own paper you're showing extreme amounts of evidence mm -hmm. that it's not, you know? And they're saying it today. And they said 10 years ago, yeah, eight years ago, that there's nothing in the ground of the shipyard that can't be safely touched, breathed, or eaten daily for 30 years. That's a quote from the Department of Public Health mm -hmm. and OEWD. So I think now, with now what we know about the shipyard, it's time for the Department of Public Health to eat shipyard dirt. <laughs> so this is what I mean when I say brutally unfair. Yeah. It's not conscious. But it works out the same way. But is there an example of a policy that currently exists that you would go in and, and change if elected? Oh, I mean, there's a long... I mean, the inbox of the District 10 supervisor, in my view, is this high, he said on the podcast, gesturing about four, three feet. <laughs> Thank you for the description. Three and a half feet. For, and it goes to shipyard, to public health, to housing, to public housing. We need to, we need to get public banking going so we have our own money to build housing on public land. Because, uh, because, you know, as long as we're trying to build affordable housing, that our road to building one affordable housing unit is to build four expensive condos or apartments, it's a sucker's bet. You know, we can't rely on the market to do that. We have to do this ourselves and take our own responsibility on it. Similarly, we need to expand Free City College. It needs to go to the summers permanently. I want to expand it to folks who've been displaced from the city because I want to bring them back. We've lost so many people of color over the years. And, you know, it's, and this is systemic racism, you know, and so trying to find pr as many practical moves as we can take. And are they expensive, some of them? Sure, you bet. That's why a public bank, that's why looking at the wealth of the richest city in the world and where does it go? We have twice the budget we had four years ago. Where does it go? We have $11 billion now. It'll be $12 billion next year. Where's that next billion dollars going to go?
And, you know, you end up adding these things up, housing, health, schooling, and so on. Is it kind of getting to something like reparations? Maybe. And Amos Brown mentioned that on Wednesday. And I, I certainly think we should at least talk about it. I know the word is scary to people, but I mean, if we're not bringing up in District 10, where are we going to? Tony, you've uh, run against the current District 10 supervisor, Malia Cohen, yeah. a couple of times. Twice. It's been close. They've, they've, those have been close races. Uh, I want to know, if you were grading Malia Cohen's tenure as District 10 supervisor, what grade would you give her and why? Oh, I'm going to duck that one. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just talk about an, a, a, a compact report on, on what she's done and how, how you might want to do things differently. I think that's a very different approach. And I'll, I'll stick to that. I, mean, I will say also, I think 2018, Malia Cohen has been our best Malia Cohen. And why? Well, she said something at the beginning of the year or middle of the year. Maybe it was around when she took the board presidency or just before. But she said, I'm in my last year on the board and I can be honest. Like, did she just say what I think she said? I don't know. And maybe I'm putting too much into maybe a slip of the tongue. I don't know. But I think she's been much better on certainly police issues. Certainly some other issues, certainly some housing stuff. You know, I, it's, there's been this running around about prop, prop 10, which is more what we had seen in the previous seven years. But, but, you know, this year's been pretty good. And so as she transitions off the board, I'm hoping that we can sort of see something from her in the future on that. But I actually think I'm running for a different job than the other people running this year or what the job that Malia had because I'm not running to be a politician, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a political job, and you put that little handle on Facebook when you're occupation, whatever, but, but I think we need an advocate more than a politician, especially for District 10, for so many people who've been unheard, you know, and, and one of the traps that people sort of throw out there outside the district is like, oh, you're going to try to save everybody. Like, no, 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 organizing is bringing their voices in. And you want to kick open the door so that everybody can get in here. You want direct access. You don't have daily office hours to tell people what you think. You do it because you want to hear folks and make sure that they know they're heard and you bring their concerns forward. So I think what I'm doing is really trying to be the complaint department because I've been the complaint department already for the past eight years. If anyone had a beef with Malia or City Hall, they find my number. I'm like, what do you want me to do? I'm a private citizen, you know? But, but we got to organize. we got to do this. Oh, okay. And I, so I think it's a different thing. I think it's really that kind of community work, like what I've been doing with neighborhood associations and organizing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying you're more, you want to be more, more of an advocate. You're not running yeah. to be a politician. Yeah. But this is City Hall and it's politics. Um, so, I mean, based on your endorsements um, and some of your platforms, you have a lot of support from the progressive faction. Um, quote, unquote, progressive yeah. faction. Well, it's funny because this year, especially, I think we've seen that there's an establishment left yeah. and there's a left left. So house. where do you... Oh, I'm where, a, a You're left, the left left. left. Or, or in the old Howard Dean phrase, the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. You know, <laughs> this this... this, this this debate has been going on mm-hmm. for a bunch of years. Right. Yeah. I, so if you had to put a label on our um, mayor, she's considered a quote-unquote moderate. Um, and again, we know no one likes right. to be put into a box, especially yeah. when it comes to politics. But at the end of the day, in this building, those labels do bear some weight, maybe more than people give it credit yeah. for. Um, and so the mayor, she's endorsed two other candidates in this race who sure. she believes are more in line with her policies. Sure. Um, if elected, mm-hmm. um, how would you work with Breed? How would you sort of bridge this? I mean, you have to, right? Yeah. Uh, and and what's what's interesting about that is, because I thought you were going to say, so you know, so what label are you going to put on her? Well, her <laughs> label is mayor. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I think that she has a great opportunity 
by being mayor that maybe she has fewer, you know, feels fewer obligations perhaps. Although maybe mayor has more obligations. I don't know. What do you mean fewer obligations? Um, You know, I think when you're focused on what your next election is. I see. You have things that you feel you need to do. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing where I say I'm not a politician because I'm too old to run for something else. I'm 55 Mm -hmm. years old. I want to step up, do this job for four or eight years, do it right, step back, let someone else, and try to get the bench, get the next generation Mm -hmm. of progressive leadership that's going to move this city where we need to go. And I certainly feel that the folks who have put us where we are are not the folks to take us where we need to go. Now, with the mayor, two things. One, there's a substantial number of folks in the district who were all in for London Breed for mayor and also working hard for me for supervisor, which doesn't make strict ideological sense. Mm. But people don't necessarily vote that way. It's relationships. It's history. And if you've organized with folks and if they see injustices in the citywide, they're going to respond one way. If they see injustices close to home in their district, they're going to respond another. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a feeling, whether it's a check and balance or whether it's like, no, no, we're on the same side, that they sort of see that. So I actually don't think it'll be that much of an issue. What, what Being elected moves everybody. Mm-hmm. you know. And so the fact that the endorsements have lined up other ways, because either because the establishment likes the establishment, the status likes to be quo, you know, that kind of thing, it changes when you actually prove that you have that support and that the district feels this way. And so it ends up moving the entire window mm-hmm. over. You know? And so everybody has to pay attention. Oh, we need to listen to the people of District 10 a little bit more now mm-hmm. because they aren't what we thought they were. Or the district elections weren't what they thought they were because it's not in the control of the corporations and building trades and so on. Tony, there's been a lot of development in D10 uh, as a of bunch. late, yeah, as much as anywhere, yeah. Uh, and you know, there's there is room to to yes. stretch out a little bit in that district. You, you had said before about the way in which uh, development goes, where you build uh, uh, four units of market rate housing to get one unit of, of below market, yeah, of affordable yeah. housing. And you talked about that being a, a kind of a fool's bet. Yeah. Can you talk about? I, I want to know how you see uh, affordable housing development, how you would prioritize it, what the right balance is. I know it's a lot. That's a big conversation. Yeah, how much time do we have? Yeah, in this I know, I know. But uh, how, how do you how do you think right. from a policy standpoint it should go? Yeah, it's funny because you know I ran a the theater for twenty years, and so I, I learned land use from the standpoint of the neighborhoods at the Petro Boosters Neighborhood Association, and learning land use is trying to like it's, it's like trying to eat a sweater. You know, I'm an amateur at yeah. this, right? But we had to learn because we knew what was being done to us. So that old line about if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And well, mm-hmm. this is happening and it's totally happening in Bayview and Biz Valley. So I learned from the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan. Ten weary fighting years and a real education in land use for better and worse. And you learn a few things. You learn that the market actually is not going to deliver these things because the market is about delivering profit and that's what it does. And that's fine. Those folks can do that. That's, that's their business model. That's their goal. They have shareholders, all that. But the city has different goals. City planning has different goals, or so they should. But we're in a city where the planning department is actually funded by developer fees, literally. You know, So they need to keep a certain amount of churn going. So our planning plan, our economic plan, it's over at the city's website. You can look it up. It's about finding money. It's about finding rich people and saying, hey, they're over there. Let's bring them here. Well, obviously, that's not working out for a lot of us. Because, you know, other candidates can crow about building 59 units of affordable housing. Well, what about the other 59,000 who are looking for it? In Bayview and Viz Valley, the average income 
doesn't even qualify for the city's affordable housing. So if you can't afford the affordable housing, what's really happening? It means that all this development in part of the city where we have two-thirds of the remaining developable land in the city, that none of it is for you. An answer, direct answer to your question about what to do, 100% public housing on 100% public land with 100% public bank. Try to take the profit motive and the market out of it entirely. They do what they do. And the BMR program in market rate housing does help some workforce. It does help some of that missing middle on that. We need to enforce it better because the city would rather people write a check than actually deliver those units. And that's another problem because then you don't get those units for five years and they go in some other part of town and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We have neighborhood preferences and people are very proud about putting in neighborhood preferences. But if the line of preferences is this long with all the different preferences you can get in the city, and the supply of quote-unquote affordable housing is this much, what are you really doing with all these preferences aside from claiming credit but not delivering? We have so many politicians who say anything but deliver so much less. So we, own, we have land. We have a lot of public land in District 10. We're the richest city in the history of the world. We have billions of dollars sitting in T-bills and commercial banks every day of the year. A small sliver of that leverage the way that financing goes by borrowing 10x from the Fed, and I can go into details of that some other time, gives you billions of dollars to build housing, and you don't have the profit margin because the most expensive things in housing are the cost of the land and the cost of the money. So take the profit motive out and do it on public land, and all of a sudden you've got something that's much more affordable that people who live here can afford without subsidy or without so much subsidy. I want to ask one specific question, and this is a really specific project, sure. So, but it is in the Bayview. This is the 1550 Evans um, oh, yeah. sort of saga. Okay, yeah, yeah. so it's, it sounds like you're familiar with oh, it. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, very quickly, there was some tension between, even between city departments about, uh, uh, you know, the Public Utilities Commission had some land, some public land, to your point, that they wanted to build uh, a new community center on. This is an important community center for the Bayview. Sure. So anyway, they're going to use this new property to, to develop this new community center. But there was uh, a lot of sort of back-channel discussions by city departments, e- even you could argue well-meaning, you know, city right, departments right. who wanted to use that site for housing. So I, I bring this up not to, you know, make anything overcomplicated, but to, like <laughs> here's an issue where you have sure. a community center where people say, we want our community center like we've planned it with the PUC for like the past five years. Mm-hmm. The city, it says, boy, we'd really like to build the community center and we'd like to build, you mm-hmm. know, a few hundred units of affordable housing there. Now, even setting aside the affordable for whom question for mm-hmm. a second, how do you navigate something like that? Because there you go. I mean, there's right. the tensions kind of right there. Sure. Um, well, it's funny because in that whole kerfuffle that was reported in, in, in your paper over the past few months, it was really hard to pick a side because I thought everybody was really covering themselves with the, op- the whatever the opposite of glory is. They were covering themselves <laughs> in it. Because the PUC, well-meaning people, but actually, but you know, when you have a, a, a city agency bringing people forward from the community saying, "No, we don't want affordable housing in Bayview," really, really, let's, let's I mean, we, do we want to talk about this or not? So that's one side. Then there were backroom shenanigans between developers and city departments, which I'm not a fan of. And then on top of that, there's the PUC itself and their commitments to the community, because everything you're describing about the promise of 1550 Evans was also promised to us at 1800 Oakdale, which and it's not being delivered there. Mm. When they built the, when PUC built the sewage treatment plant, there was a long effort of getting the proper package of community benefits, and they worked it out. It had soccer fields, they had transportation improvements, they had job training and greenhouses and other things. 
Then the city attorney's office at the time looked at it about a year later and said, you know, that's really too expensive. We're going to cut this in half. We didn't get a lot of it. Well, what was the budget of the PUC then, and what is it today? So why can't we ever go back to that and deliver those things that were promised and worked out with the community in the 80s? Let alone this move over there, where we got 10 acres for community benefits out of 1800 Oakdale, and it's four and a half, five acres out of 1550 Evans. So even if you want to do the exact PUC proposal and deliver it exactly that way, they still owe us five acres. And a lot of money and everything else. And we still have 80% of the city's sewage and other city sewage going in right across the street mm. from people's homes. Mm-hmm. So when do we get to have that conversation? And we certainly never had any kind of discussion about 1550 Evans the way there was about the sewage treatment plant to begin with at Oakdale. So where I would go, I, me, personally, I would like to press the reset button and say, let's review where PUC is about what they've promised to deliver to the community and what they actually are delivering. And if that causes too much heartburn for people, it's like, okay, fine. Fine. We have this agreement. We know what's missing there. We have a proposal for 1550 Evans. But let's do the community process honestly about it. No backroom stuff. No backroom stuff from PUC either now. Come on. Grow up. And let's actually get the, the balance that we need. And, and maybe if they want to do their, that exact proposal and they want, want to stick to that, okay, well, that's an expensive proposal, PUC. You have other land. So maybe we do the housing on other land nearby. What happens to the 1800 Oakdale site? Mm. We haven't even had that conversation. So there needs to be a much more global idea. You know, we get into this trap where supervisors, especially candidates, think that they're Superman or Superwoman and they can magically negotiate deals all one-on-one. And Supervisor Maxwell, to her credit, came in in 2000 saying planning, not banning. But also, let's not do this, let's make a deal thing on each site. Let's actually have a plan and then make people live with that. Mm-hmm. So, so moving into the lightning round. Oh, yeah. And li- I, I get too on, chatty. Yeah, uh, yeah let's, emphasis let's, let's on lightning. Yeah. What is the first piece of legislation you'd want to sponsor as a supervisor if elected? It might be to take over or to get some supervisor authority over OCII. OCII, just for you don't know, if this is the first time you're hearing the words, the letters OCII on the podcast, is an obscure city agency that's responsible for former redevelopment areas, so they're over the shipyard. The Board of Supervisors has no direct oversight over the shipyard, so why are we talking about the shipyard? It's a city agency under mayor appointees. We need to put it under supervised control, and it's only an ordinance passed in 2011 that makes that so, so you want to fix that. Uh, Tony, I think it's fair to say one of the most closely watched and and maybe hotly debated propositions on this upcoming ballot has been Our City, Our Home, Proposition C. Uh, A a quick uh, up or down and where you stand on that and a a compact explanation of why. Uh, uh, Extremely supportive. I'm I'm taking door hangers out when I'm knocking on doors on it. Um, Because, you know, we we know know what ends homelessness. It's housing. It's supportive housing. It's expensive. Can we do it out of our $11 billion budget? I sure think so, but okay, if you don't, here's a new tax that does it that's about as painless as a tax as you can do it because it's on extremely wealthy companies after $50 million of income. Tax the rich, house the homeless. What's wrong with that? Uh, same question on Proposition 10, the statewide uh, uh, measure to repeal Costa-Hawkins and give uh, more local control over rent control law. Yeah, First off, it's funny to me that that's so, so hot here because it's a statewide measure and I'm not sure we're actually going to be the deciders. Well, I mean, given the status of the housing debate and... and sure, the, so we talk about it, yes. Yeah. Strong support of it, but, about, but it's a different um, explanation there. We have so much pain 
in our rental market today, and it's locked in. I've got members on Betrayal Hill who, um, well, there's one in particular who was on the rent board who says that the Costa Hawkins has made our rent control laws an eviction incentive ordinance because there's such a gap mm-hmm. between market rate and someone who's lived there for a while. So you, you come up with reasons to get them out. And so we can reduce the pain if Costa Hawkins is revealed. When, when rent control first came in, it wasn't meant to apply to one, two, three unit buildings. The city expanded it to that in 95 because of Costa Hawkins. We needed to preserve rent control wherever we could. What I want to see is I want to see the large buildings, 400 units, 300 units, newer buildings, corporate landlords, deep-pocketed investment pool, get those guys under rent control, and then we can find the right way to reduce the pressure on the small property owners. But we can't touch any of that mm-hmm. in, unless we press Prop 10. Yeah. Um, and so we, we got to this, um, or we touched upon this before, but how, how do you feel about being branded as the progressive in this race? Uh, you know what's funny about <laughs> <Tell> this? <laughs> I mean, haha, funny? I don't know. It, it, this is this really weird mix. Again, in this, in this funny city, which, which likes to think of itself as progressive, but, you know, when it counts, kind of isn't. Um, and likes to think it isn't racist when we see on a daily basis mm-hmm. that it totally is. Um, is that progressive ideas win. Progressive ideas work. We want to be progressive and liberal. Um, and there's no, and there's no difference between the two mm-hmm. in that. Okay. But the other side, the conservative side spends three years bashing on progressives and, you know, like trying to make that a bad word, you know, and targeting them like you're going to ruin the city and bankrupt or whatever. And then in election years, they try to claim they're progressive, you know? Um, I mean, we've had stuff going on in district 10 where folks are claiming, oh, we all have the same policy ideas. Are we all democratic socialists now? Really? Is that was that what we're talking about? So, so I don't mind it at all. In fact, go ahead and brand me a socialist. That's fine. Mm-hmm. It's true, and in fact, it's popular. Mm-hmm. So go right ahead. Yeah. All right. On that note, Tony Kelly, thank you so much for coming in. That's a great really note to end on. Thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> this show is a part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. It was produced by me, Don Forcasa. For more city hall coverage, visit sfchronicle.com. dot